Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time, Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food production and food consumption. We can talk all day and night about the challenges in agriculture, what's happening from a weather standpoint, what's happening from a policy standpoint. But unless we have electricity, all that other stuff doesn't matter. Our fuel supply is in jeopardy. I spent a lot of time talking about Executive Order 18004 and the 30 by 30 component within that executive order. But the most of that 56-page report is dedicated to how we're going to transform our electric grid and our fuel supply as a whole away from the reliable supply of resources that we have in being coal and oil, natural gas. Somebody that's on top of that every single day and has not been with me for quite some time. In fact, like a pregnancy, I guess, Isaac, or you said it was nine months and I'm thinking of a cow pregnancy, 287 days. How about that? How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Trent? I'm fabulous. Just can't find anything to really focus on. That was a joke. It apparently didn't go over very well. Policy yeah. fellow at the center of the American experiment. Coming to us from, are you in Minnesota today? Uh, yes, sir. I think I was in your home state this week, but did you not grow up in Wisconsin? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. Well, I was born in the hospital, raised on a dairy farm, so we'll put it that way. You weren't born born in a calving stanchion? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Thankfully, <laughs> uh, we had access to modern medicine. So, You know, ironically, we're going back to calving in a in a, in a barn <laughs> with our people, with our kids, women are going back to childbirth at home instead sure. of in the hospital. Yeah. Just in the stock tank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The Center for American the American Experiment. Tell us about the organization. Yeah, so we're a conservative think tank located in Minnesota, and we do a lot of research on a bunch of different issues. So we've got education. We've got two economists on staff that do work on why are people leaving Minnesota from an economic perspective. Uh, if you haven't noticed, crime in Minnesota has been on an uptick. So we have uh, hired a former uh, sheriff investor, sorry, a former detective to you know talk to people about why things keep getting worse. And then we've also got um, healthcare policy people. So we really run the gambit on this, but my specialty is energy and environmental policy. And, uh, in that regard, I also look at, you know, egg policy to some extent when I have time. Um, cause you can take the boy off the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. Right. And, yep. uh, you know, my colleague Mitch Rowling and I have been very concerned about what the Biden administration is doing in terms of energy policy, uh, because it's going to make our grid a lot more vulnerable to rolling blackouts. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said that sounds like an oxymoron, to be honest. But this is for people outside of Minnesota that don't really get it. You said they're a, a conservative think tank in Minnesota. There is a tremendous conservative presence in Minnesota. It just often does not get any attention. And, and so you're bringing it to light. And that's what I love about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because areas of the state that were traditionally very blue are now starting to turn more conservative, right? So you've got mm -hmm. like the Iron Range, the rural areas. Uh, it's interesting in Minnesota, I think that people are more conservative than they vote, if that makes sense. And I think one of the reasons for that is so we have the Democratic Party in Minnesota is called the Democrat Farmer Labor Party. So I think that 
you know, people in the rural areas didn't realize that the people in the metro were leaving them behind as quickly because it was in the name, right? So it's just interesting the way that branding affects people's decisions. So let's get right to the core of the issue. I'm greatly concerned. I've got the data that was presented in D.C. Uh, FERC was involved. What's your big picture view? And then we'll dive into the nuts and bolts uh, going on with this energy reduction, reliable energy reduction in the nation. What's going on? Yeah. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is in charge of making sure that the lights stay on. Right. So. Uh, two of the commissioners on the, um, the commission were appointed by President Trump. And then, uh, I believe three were now appointed by President Biden or reappointed by President Biden. And the two Republican commissioners, uh, have been very vocal about the fact that, uh, the way that we are regulating our electricity markets from the EPA standpoint and from the federal standpoint means that we're going to have blackouts because we keep forcing reliable coal and sometimes natural gas plants to retire. Uh, before we have anything reliable to replace them. And, you know, the problem with this is obviously if you don't have reliable power, you have blackouts. Uh, it wouldn't be so bad if, you know, the, the liberals were saying, look, let's replace this stuff with nuclear power because nuclear power works. Like anytime you need it, you, you can turn on the nuclear power plant and you can use it. But they are refusing to, you know, transform our energy system in the least responsible way possible by, you know, forcing us to use wind, solar, and battery storage. And, you know, listeners on your program know, you know, damn well that the worst part about being a farmer is relying on the weather, right? Mm -hmm. So now all of these bureaucrats in Washington want to make all of us reliant on the weather for our electricity, which is, you know, probably the most essential service that we have as a, as a modern society. Isaac Orr, this is exactly why I don't have you on the program often enough. You just brought something to light that I should have been on top of a long time ago. The greatest challenge a farmer has is not controlling the weather. If we could control the weather, we can grow anything all anytime, anywhere. We can't control the weather. And we are moving our energy supply to be completely dependent upon the weather. That's genius. Well, wait, time out, time out. The, the the analogy that you use is genius. The fact that we're doing it is stupidity. Yeah, I, I knew what you meant, Trent. Maybe your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's spot on. But but why, Isaac? The, uh, last week I had a commissioner on from Coffee County, Kansas, who the Coffee County commissioners. Uh, took a stand and they were the first county in the nation to issue a resolution against EPA in targeting small butcher shops. But in that conversation, I learned that there's a nuclear plant in Coffee County, Kansas, and they're only allowing it to run at 30% capacity. Why? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly why uh, that nuclear plant is only running at that capacity. But, you know, the fact that they're I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said it best, um, or at least her chief of staff did. Uh, it's something just, I would never heard, think I would hear on this program, that AOC well, said something best. Know. But go ahead, go ahead. So, I mean, the, the chief of staff said, well, the Green New Deal was never about the environment. It was always about restructuring society, right? So right. that's, you know, they don't want nuclear power because that means that nothing really has to change, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I used to work at the Heartland Institute and our, you know, our former president, Joe Bast, always said the great thing about climate change and global warming and is that it gives the left an excuse to do everything that they ever wanted to do anyway. 
So, you know, in some ways, like this is basically, I don't understand what their end goal is because, you know, essentially what happens when you force a grid to be too reliant on wind and solar, which is what EPA is doing, you end up like California. Like that isn't anybody's idea of a, you know, a great society, right? I mean, you've got homeless people everywhere. Uh, and then the lights go out if it gets too hot and all of the electric vehicles that they're going to mandate be sold in the state, they're going to ask you not to charge them when the sun is going down. So like, uh, it's, it's a recipe for Venezuela. And for some reason, we keep getting pushed that direction. Isaac, yesterday I had the opportunity to visit with my U.S. Senator Pete Ricketts. And he said, Trent, it is so frustrating because we were talking. I was telling him that you and I were going to visit and that I would share this information with him. But he said it is so frustrating that those folks like the AOC that you mentioned and everybody who's pushing this new green deal in DC, every sentence, every sentence starts with in, in, uh, in light of this climate crisis, every sentence. And then whatever is going on is as a direct result of the climate crisis. It's such a brainwashing and it continues at a high level. Yeah, I mean, it's become the left's excuse for everything, right? So um, kind of like systemic racism, right? So they they say that there are these root causes that you can't question, right? You can't, you know, question the basic assumptions that they're building all of their, you know, recommendations for how, you know, we normal people are supposed to change how we live mm-hmm. uh, on something that they say, oh, that's untouchable. You're a bad person if you even question our foundational assumptions here. And they use it as a bludgeoning tool in order to force us to do a bunch of stuff that we don't want to do. And, you know, when it comes to energy policy, though, Republicans deserve a good share of the blame, right? So, you know, President Trump was in office, he had a Republican House, and he had a Republican Senate, but they still uh, re-upped the subsidies for wind and solar, right? So, um, there are certain Republicans in the Senate that have been um, really in favor of the wind subsidies, Chuck Grassley in Iowa being one of them. And until the Republicans get serious about, you know, ending the subsidies for, uh, unreliable energy sources, this problem will continue to get worse. So, uh, I think that that's something hopefully Senator Ricketts can take back to his, uh, fellow members of the Senate and say, look, like we understand that this has been, um, popular in our state for a while, but, this is having a real so what happens is you have all this subsidized or what happens is where he'll pick it up when we come back with more roll route after this we're talking about a reliable source of energy here today coal lignite coal and details about the people can be found at lignite.com life is powered by coal welcome back Roll route, Trent Luce alongside Isaac Orr, policy fellow for the Center of the American Experiment. Proud of myself. It's little victories in life that make the difference. Okay. Uh, you were talking about, and I just want to say, and I don't, I'm not going to disrupt you. You did not hear me say the left, the right, the Republicans, Democrats, all of them, all of the elected officials who've been directing energy policy are directly and responsible for what is about to happen. It's not just a Democrat issue, and I'm glad you brought that up. And you were about to say when I said, and go. Yeah, so uh, when you subsidize the wind and solar, you're essentially dumping a product into the market, like Chinese steel firms dump steel in the 
U.S. markets to undermine our ability to produce it ourselves. So that's another reason why these coal plants and nuclear plants don't run as frequently, because we subsidize the wind and solar. We mandate that we use them. So all of a sudden, you don't have to run these plants as much because there's no room on the grid for it. So uh, that's why companies say, oh, this is uneconomic. We're going to shut it down. So these subsidies that we have for wind and solar are forcing us to shut down the most reliable and affordable gen- electricity generating assets on the grid. And then we're left with a situation like Texas where, you know, if the wind's not blowing and you don't have access to natural gas, it's lights out. Texas, I believe, is at now 40% of a, its electric supply coming from unreliable sources such as wind and solar. And Texas was told, don't go more than 20 or you're going to be vulnerable. I don't understand why they're so deaf. Yeah. So, I mean, Texas doesn't have an like an oversight of its electricity market. They just say anybody who wants to build anything anytime, you can come in and do that. And that just doesn't work for electricity. Um, So Texas is kind of uniquely bad in terms of the way that it regulates its electricity markets because you know let's be real you need realistic regulation because there's no free market for electricity it's just everything is regulated differently mm-hmm. i i'm actually isaac or i'm going to tell you that we need to go dark for a while it's it's the only remedy to what we're talking about here in terms of bad energy policy until people get a taste of it they're not paying attention I mean, my my main gripe is people think milk comes from the store and they think electricity comes from the outlet. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the the end consumer of like whatever agriculture products or electricity, they don't know what it's like to have to depend on the weather trend. Right. Like everything happens to show up at their grocery store or their outlet, rain or shine, no matter what happens. So they don't understand the importance of or the influence that that has on our lives. And you're absolutely right. There's going to have to be multiple instances of blackouts before people in the suburbs who have cushy white collar jobs are uh, willing to reconsider their preconceived notions that wind and solar are just fundamentally good and that fossil fuels are bad. Eventually, they'll come around, but it's going to come at a major cost for the rest of us. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things I want to use here as an analogy. Um, one, Illinois was the number one coal-fired power plant producing electricity state in the nation. With Governor Pritzker and the Illinois-Chicago thought process, they are on a fast track to have zero zero coal-fired power plants producing electricity in Illinois. And the problem is, like, I went through Delta, Utah the other day, and I've talked about this almost every day now, Isaac, because it was it was just such an in-your-face. There is a There was a large coal-fired power plant in Delta, Utah, that they have just shut down, and they were dismantling it when I went through town. It was supplying a tremendous amount of electricity west of the Rockies, and when you dismantle something, it's not like you just go back and put a little coal in there and turn the, the engine back on. You you dismantled it. That fundamentally disrupt, disrupts the entire infrastructure. This is not a short-term fix once we decide we want to fix it. And that's why we shouldn't be tearing a lot of these coal plants down. Uh, we should be mothballing them, basically have it to where they're on standby for use if and when we need it. And I have a lot of criticisms about Germany and what they've been doing in terms of energy for the last 25 years. But one of the things that Germany did right 
was they did put their uh, coal plants on standby, right? So they carefully mothballed them. So the only reason they were able to weather this, like the cutoff in Russia natural gas is because they were able to turn their coal plants back on. And that's something that we should be doing here in the U.S. And it's been very much on our mind, if you're paying attention, that Germany went down this route. You probably know exactly how many years ago. It seems like it was 20 years ago. And then they figured out that it was a problem. So they come back to coal-fired power plants. And yet people just can't seem to grasp it. We can't make the same mistakes they made. Meanwhile, China's building a new coal-fired power plant every month. Yeah. And some people say it's two a week. Some people say it's one a month. Like nobody really knows how much coal China's building, but it's a lot, right? So even if the United States were to shut down every single coal fire power plant, China's use of coal would still swamp our contribution to global emissions, right? So uh, essentially what the Biden administration is doing is it's forcing electricity prices to go up. It's making our grid unreliable and it's all for zero environmental benefit because that CO2 from China is going to blow on over here anyway. So it's not like he's saving the planet. He's just making life more difficult and more expensive for Americans. I think isn't that the answer? Um, and this ties into what I spend more time on than any other issue today, and that is the CO2 pipeline. If you look at the historical average of parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, we're at a historical low. I mean, we've been significantly higher. CO2 drives plant growth that creates photosynthesis, producing a, a, a oxygen from the plant. The plant grows as a result of it. We have demonized CO2 to think that we somehow have to sequester it. Well, we sequester it every day when something grows. And that's what farmers do. They sequester carbon. They continue to use this natural occurring element to make life better. And we've allowed the demonization of something that enables life. Isn't the answer that we do a better job educating people about how important these emissions are and they're not destroying the planet? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that CO2 does facilitate plant growth. It also allows plants to grow bigger while using less water, right? So I think the public would definitely benefit from that. Um, you know, a lot of these CO2 pipelines are being driven by California's policy. So they have something called the low carbon fuel standard. And basically it says they have to reduce the you know emissions from their gasoline tanks. And a lot of ethanol plants in the Midwest are looking to you know sequester their CO2 underground so they can sell their stuff into California for a premium. So uh California's craziness is driving you know ridiculous policy decisions here in the Midwest too. Yeah, and we tend to think that we just ignore the whack jobs and the fruits and the nuts in California, and they don't bother us. They bother us every single day. But Isaac Orr, you, I, I've been digging into CO2 and trying to learn everything I possibly can for now two years, and you just told me something, once again, like a genius, that I hadn't zeroed in on, and that is that CO2 causes plants to grow bigger while using less water. Tell me more about that using less water part. Yeah, uh, Craig Idso has done a lot of really good work on this. Um, he's a scientist down in Arizona who looks at this stuff specifically. His dad was pretty formative on this too. But essentially what happens is when a plant is trying to suck in CO2, it has to open the pores in the plant in order to, you know, absorb that CO2. And when those pores open up, they also lose more water. So when the concentration of CO2 is higher, they have less time where their the pores are open. And I'm very much oversimplifying this. So there's probably some agronomists who are listening to this who are uh, cringing right now at my oversimplification. But 
essentially, yeah, the plant is able to absorb more CO2 while, you know, exposing itself to less water loss. So that's, that's essentially my understanding of how that works. I did, that makes perfect sense. And I'm just putting together a visual <clears throat> that if, if you're hungry or, or let's use thirsty, if you're a human being and you're thirsty, you're really, really thirsty and you're going for water, you open your mouth wider. You try to get more in at a shorter period of time. If you just need a drink, you just drink it slow and go about your business. It makes total sense to me. And I never really given it any thought. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. I don't think you need to be a scientist to understand that. And I had never taken the time to zero in on it. That's why you're here, Isaac Orr, bringing us the ideas and the thoughts about life and the cycle of life that we have not previously thought about. We're halfway through. We'll be back with more Roll Route, Isaac Orr, after this. Hey, I gotta, I gotta, because of TV radio, I gotta save this half and then send you another link. So it takes like three minutes to save it and then send you another link. Okay, sounds good. I'll I'll send you another email. You can get a cup of coffee or, you know, go get some CO2 or something. Yeah, I'll get some CO2. Let's talk about beef for a moment. The upcycling of a cow. Reaping the rewards of CO2 in the atmosphere, more plant growth, more cow feed, more human food. That's how it works. It's called the cycle of life. And the cow makes it happen. God's second most genius invention. Certified Piedmontese brings you a very tender supply of that invention. Get more details about how scrumptious, that's my word of the day, scrumptious the Piedmontese beef is because it's tender. Thanks to the genetics of these Piedmontese cattle dating back to Italy and they first came to the United States. The American cattleman has Americanized them. That means they perform extremely well. They're healthy, they're vibrant, and they taste good and tender. CertifiedPiedmontese.com. Order it. Have it delivered to your house and you'll prove me right today. Welcome back. Roll route to the program. Isaac Orr, Policy Fellow for Center of the American Experiment, joining us from Minnesota today. Uh, you were sharing when I saw you last in September, the um, the grave, I'm calling it a grave situation. I should call it a dark, a dark situation in Minnesota itself, where Minnesota has pushed the accelerator to eliminate all fossil fuel sourced electricity is that still taking place or what's going on with that isaac yeah so uh the election went uh in a way that the democrats were able to take control of the house senate and the governorship so uh early in this legislative session in february uh they passed a bill mandating that 100% of minnesota's electricity come from non-fossil fuel sources right and that's a big problem because coal is currently the largest source of electricity that we have in the state it's about 25% of the electricity that we use. And it's some of the most reliable and affordable stuff that we have on our grid. So uh, the the mandates that were passed by the Walls administration are going to undermine the reliability of the grid. And you know, one of the things that happens during all of this debate is like uh the the you know the liberals in the legislature who voted for this said, oh well don't worry. If we have a if we don't have enough power in Minnesota, we'll just import electricity from a neighboring state. And the problem with that is, you know, it's like um, energy socialism in a way. Eventually you run out of other people's electricity. 
because other people or other states are doing this same thing, right? So you're talking about Utah earlier and Utah mm-hmm. shut down a coal-fired power plant. Well, California depends on that coal-fired power plant being available. So when they do their incredibly stupid virtue signaling and saying, oh, we're getting rid of our natural gas, that they can import that power uh, when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. So Minnesota is going to become kind of this crater for the entire region. So when we don't have enough power, we're going to try and get as much from Wisconsin as we can from North Dakota, South Dakota. And if they, if we don't have enough still, then we're going to have rolling blackouts in all of those states. So other people in other states will suffer because of, uh, I don't know, I would say the lack of hubris in, um, or sorry, uh, la- the hubris, the lack of humbleness among our Minnesota legislature because they just think that they can control the weather. Uh, I experienced that in a very low way, but it, it was enough to give me a, a full understanding of what is going to happen. And that is the third week of February 2022 when we had the uh, severe cold weather in Texas. And I live in Nebraska, a thousand miles north of Texas. And yep. yet we experienced rolling brownouts when it was actual temperatures 20 below zero. And we had, we had to conserve our electricity because Texas needed to pull power from the northern part of the Southwest power pool. And, and you, you don't think about the stupidity of Texas or Minnesota affecting you when you don't live close to there. But that in fact is what you just described. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the situation at Southwest power pool then was, you know, also influenced by the fact that there were a lot of like the natural gas infrastructure in Texas got frozen. So you couldn't send the natural gas from Texas to Nebraska, per se, mm-hmm. right? And Nebraska, I don't know if you guys have shut down as many coal-fired power plants as we have here in Minnesota. But you know the great thing about coal and the great thing about nuclear that make them the two best sources of electricity generation, in my opinion, uh, are that you have the fuel on site there, right? You've got maybe three months of coal just hanging around. And you often have 18 months of nuclear fuel on site at a nuclear plant. So it doesn't matter if you have a pipeline station that breaks down. You still have guaranteed coal generation or nuclear generation. And that's simply not the case with natural gas. It's one of the reasons why the Southeast had so many blackouts over Christmas. So we're realizing that this idea that natural gas is um, you know, people pretend that natural gas is as reliable as coal or nuclear, and that's simply not the case. And we're, you know, unfortunately, we're you know, reaping the the bad fruits of that policy. We have one coal-fired power plant in Nebraska, and uh, word I'm being told by people in the power business in Nebraska is that by by next year, 2024. With the current demand and production in Nebraska alone, we will be 25% short of the electric, total electric needs for the calendar year 2025, 2024. I'm sorry. Interesting. Yeah. It's not a rosy picture. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be a shame to shut that down. Um, unfortunately, that's exactly, we can get back into the Biden administration right now because I think that this is super important. Um, They've essentially rolled out a bunch of EPA regulations that are specifically geared at shutting down coal-fired power plants. And that's just, you know, they would probably even openly admit that. So 
Um, they have one called the mercury and air toxic standards. They have one called the ozone transport rule, the coal combustion and residual rule, and then they have their new regulations on CO2, right? So essentially, uh, you know, they're just throwing as many straws onto the camel's back as possible. So, you know, if they have, uh, if they don't think a coal plant will shut down because of one of the regulations, they'll throw another one on it. So, you know, ultimately coal is still a big part of the U.S. grids. Um, infrastructure. And as you shut that down, one of the things that, you know, you had blackouts during the, the winter storm, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, blacked out Texas. Minnesota didn't because Pennsylvania had enough coal plants and they were sending us a lot of power during that time. The more these regulations shut down coal plants in the eastern half of the United States, that's less that they have to share with anybody else. So, um, you know, ultimately what, you know, American experiment, we're, we're basically right now calculating the cost of all these regulations and telling the government this is dumb, don't do it. Uh, they're probably going to try and do it anyway, but uh, we are uniquely able to calculate the cost of these regulations. And then, you know, hopefully we can at least give the Supreme Court some reason to, you know, stop the regulation from being implemented beforehand. So that's that's really a big focus of what uh, my colleague Mitch Rowling and I have been up to for the last probably, you know, six months. I thought of something yesterday. Um, actually, I watched a short video from a guy in Australia that, that put the numbers to practicality. And that is the amount of CO2 he was using Australian terms, the amount of CO2 that the Australian government says is generated <clears throat> annually in Australia versus the number of trees and the demand for CO2 just naturally. And the demand exceeded what was the government says is being produced in terms of emissions each year. And that caused me to think, Isaac, and maybe you have the data on this. You know, last time I was in, I spoke in Minnesota. Um, they were talking about putting in thousands of acres, contiguous acres, like 2,600 acres of solar panels. And we're doing this everywhere. And I'm being told that they're going to have 3 million acres covered with solar panels before they're done. And I don't think that gets to what they're really trying to accomplish. What is the reduction in CO2 utilization when you put a solar panel over an area that should be growing something green that the sun and the CO2 are feeding? There has to be some formula that we could put together in terms of how we're reducing overall plant growth as a result of what we're doing and producing a weather-dependent energy supply? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Trent. Uh, I think that the solar panel would probably net out a little better than the um, than the, the crop. Let's say you're growing corn or you're having mm-hmm. a solar panel, which one's offsetting more? I mean, it really depends on, okay, so let's just pretend that the solar panel is offsetting the the coal that we're using it's not necessarily a one-to-one but let's for sake of argument let's say it okay um but the solar panel can operate in uh january february you know december november when you know the crop is basically dormant for that period of time so unless you have like uh evergreen trees everywhere like there's just like eight or sorry, there's probably like five or six months of the year where nothing's going to grow in the state of Minnesota because it's winter. And uh, for me, I think that's why if you ran the numbers, the the solar probably would net out a little better, but that doesn't mean it's the best use of the land because you can't eat electricity, right? So um, from my perspective, I think it's like, 
you know, let's, let's talk about the fact that you need a lot less land in order to produce the same amount of power if you are going to be using nuclear, natural gas, coal. And let's let uh, farmers use the land for what it's, you know, good for. And that's, uh, that's, you know, producing something uh, that, you know, we all put uh, the food that we put on our table, not unreliable energy. One acre of corn consumes eight tons of carbon dioxide in a growing season. And and the reason I thought about that, and I'm going to do some other off-air calculations with that, Isaac, because I have seen, as I'm sure you have, that the photosynthesis production uh, chemistry during the growing season of the United States corn crop does four times more CO2 absorption than the Amazon rainforest does. And we, we never factor in the plants that are grown to produce food and what their contribution is to the, the greater climate. We, we don't spend enough time talking about that. Yeah. I mean, that's news to me in terms of the Amazon. That's pretty impressive. Um, so I think that like what the other side is going to argue when you say that is, you know, okay, well, where's a lot of that corn going? All right. So it's going to animal feed and the animals are, you know, chewing it up. And a lot of times the cows are belching it back out. So you still have that, um, the greenhouse gas is making its way back into the atmosphere. And it's the same if you're using it for ethanol. So, um, you know, the, the, that's exactly what they tell me because I have used yeah. this argument. Yeah. And I tell them that's part of the cycle of life. We yeah. utilize carbon. We, we generate something from it. We release it back in the atmosphere and it's called the cycle of life. We're trying to disrupt the cycle of life is what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Biden administration is going to disrupt it a whole lot more here. So, um, yeah. I got one minute before we go to a break. I don't, I don't want to dive into that, but when I come back, I do want to get into how, how drastic, how quickly you, you see this thing playing out everybody always wants date isaac and i don't think we can actually just say you know on july 17th you're in trouble right everybody wants that but i want to give a big picture view of how quickly this demand is going to exceed what it is that's available and we also ought to spend a little time talking about i i just i'm still my i'm boggled at that we have only there were literally three grids in the United States, one of them being a small grid in Texas, and then the United States and Canada are on two grids. It's crazy to me. How did that happen? Isaac Orr, we'll be back with the last segment of Roll Route after this. This discussion that we're having today really comes back to freedom, liberty, and to me the sacrifice of 247 years worth of human lives. The number of people that have picked said, pick me, I want to defend our freedom. We say thank you to them in a number of ways. The one that I really appreciate is the Wall of Honor. More information on the wallofhonor.org. It separates out the veterans from the active duty to the first responders because all of us, all of those people, all of those individuals in your community contribute to where we're at today. We need to pick up the torch and carry it now. But let's say thank you to those who got us here. The wallofhonor.org is the best way to do that. It's at a local level. And make your contribution today as well. The wallofhonor.org. Isn't it time we show the right honor? Welcome back. Trent Luce alongside Isaac Orr. He's a policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment based in Minnesota. 
All right, what's the date? Isaac Orr, what's the date? We're all going to go dark. Oh, man. So uh, I think it's going to be in the wintertime sometime. So, you know, the problem with having an electric grid that is increasingly based on the weather is you don't know what the weather is going to look like any day of the year, right? So I can't give you a specific date, but uh, I think that the there's a basically a preponderance of evidence that shows that we're actually the most vulnerable to a blackout during winter months, because that's when we tend to have natural gas supply problems. And Mm -hmm. it's also when solar panels don't work very well. So uh, we have solar panels in Minnesota, and they only produce about 5% of their potential output some months in the winter, uh, because A, the days are very short up here, and also it snows. So um, realistically, moving forward, uh, we're going to have the the highest risk of blackouts during winter times when it's not very windy. So um, I, don't, I can't tell you if that's going to be this year. I thought it might have been two years ago, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, but every year we're getting closer and closer to that trend. Why would you be two years off? What What happened that didn't meet what you expected? Yeah, so every year uh, – so um, – so, Nebraska is part of the Southwest Power Pool, right? So Correct. Minnesota is part of a regional grid within that Eastern Interconnect called the Mid-Continent Independent Systems Operator, or MISO. It's a 15-state grid that stretches from uh, Minnesota to Mississippi. And essentially, they said, uh, MISO issued a report saying, look, we could be in trouble this winter because we don't have enough reliable power plants to meet our you know, expected peak demand plus a margin of safety. So this was coming directly from the grid operator saying, hey, we may not have enough power plants in order to make it through the winter. And this is when, uh, so this was 2021. This is when we weren't sure if we were going to have enough coal supplies because a lot of the mines had gotten shut down during COVID and hadn't been able to restart. So there were real concerns about fuel supply as well as the fact that, you know, we're shutting down too many power plants. And not only are we shutting them down, we're demolishing them, like you talked about this, the plant in Utah. So uh, that's why I thought we might have been in a bad place in 2021. But um, if if some of these or these regulations from the Biden administration go through, um, they're looking to shut down power plants, you know, this year, next year, um, using these these regulations, or at least forcing them to operate less frequently. So you're essentially gambling with the electric grid based on the weather and you know, uh, there's a reason that we have irrigation pivots. It's because relying on the weather is awful and you want to reduce your exposure to that as much as possible. Well, in MISO's area, you're, you're pretty much vulnerable with what happens at one power plant, it looks to me like, and that's Coal Creek Station in North Dakota that exports 40% of the electricity that comes out of North Dakota. And the EPA is threatening to shut them down right now because of a a crack in a liner for their coal ash, a byproduct. Yeah, uh, the Coal Creek Station is really interesting, right? So uh, that serves Minnesota electric cooperatives. Essentially, they built that plant out in Coal Creek. It's one of the most sophisticated coal plants that we have in the entire country, and uh, so EPA is challenging uh, their ability to continue operating because of the liner, but they're also looking to do um, a uh, the mercury and air toxic standard, which will take out all of those North Dakota coal plants because, you know, just the chemistry of the coal that they're burning does not lend itself to producing the the mercury that comes out of the stack even more than they already have, which has already, you know, been pretty impressive over the last 10 years. So, 
essentially um, the administration is taking, they're just, you know, it's essentially a death by a thousand cuts trend. So they're looking to do whatever they can to push these coal plants offline, even though the new owners of the, the Coal Creek station want to put carbon capture and sequestration on it, right? So uh, the Biden administration says, we want to reduce our CO2 emissions. Uh, Coal Creek new owners, Rainbow Energy say, okay, let's do that. And then they say, just kidding, we want to shut you down anyway. Well, it was within two weeks that the EPA announced that they wanted to shut down Coal Creek because of this liner. And then two weeks later, they announced, the Department of Energy announces they're going to give Coal Creek a $39 million grant to do carbon capture. It's like, does the left hand talk to the right hand? What's going on here? I don't think that Secretary Granholm is qualified to hold her position as the Secretary of Energy. I think that She's just made several comments that should be disqualifying for the energy secretary. So, um, you know, I have a complicated view on carbon capture, Trent. Uh, I don't like the fact that government subsidies are being used for it. Uh, I question the value, uh, the return on investment in terms of, you know, what's the, what's the benefit to the environment for each ton of CO2 that you're, you're pumping down underground. But on the other hand, uh, Carbon capture and sequestration is a lot less stupid than trying to rely on wind, solar, and battery storage in terms of reliability and affordability. So if I'm in a, if I'm stuck in a world where I have imperfect choices, I think that carbon capture is a much better choice than pretending that we can rely on the weather and maintain a 21st century economy. So, um, hopefully, uh, the administration comes to its senses on this, but unfortunately, I, I don't have much confidence that they will. So here's where I'm at, and I, I think we're on the same page. But I, I've studied this greatly, more than I thought I ever would study one thing in the last year. Carbon capture is a great opportunity to to capture a commodity as long as you use that commodity to add value to the environment or humans in some other way. It's clear to me that CO2 is the new generation jet fuel, and we're building plants. we got a plant... In Lake Preston, that's going in. We got an ethanol plant that they've announced that they're going to build in the Delta, uh, off the Gulf of Mexico. That's about capturing CO2 to produce a jet fuel. There's 15 tremendous valuable uses for CO2. That all makes sense to me to capture CO2 and tell people that we're going to take it to Oliver or Mercer counties, North Dakota and entomb it because we need to get it out of the atmosphere is stupidity leading to massive death. And we cannot allow that to happen. But I don't believe that is happening, Isaac. I believe that that is a a lie by three companies and three individuals who are trying to monopolize the supply of CO2. If they put it in this entombed area in North Dakota, it's only to store it like a grain bin so that when the, the true value comes out about what it is, they'll be taking it back out of there and selling it onto the marketplace. But what I am absolutely opposed to in no way, shape, or form in favor of and will fight and die for on this hill is that taking CO2 by the means of eminent domain, putting pipelines in and everything else that's happening, encroaching upon people's rights as human beings, and telling us that we're going to put it in the earth two miles deep is the stupidest ploy that's ever come up yet in a group of stupid ideas. I, I wouldn't put it that low because we still have the idea that the Green New Deal is going to work, right? With wind, well, solar, it's part and of that, storage. right? It's it all, is. It's, it's it all is. the same thing. 
Um, but you know, the, so in Minnesota, this was a big debate during our 100%, we called it the blackout bill, the 100% carbon free electricity mandate. They didn't want to allow carbon capture and sequestration, a lot of the liberals in the legislature, because it, uh, it allowed them to keep using fossil fuels is what they said. So, uh, they don't really care about the CO2 so much as I think it's about punishing preserved or, um, perceived, sorry, uh, political enemies. And that's, I think, what a lot of the the folks on the left see is the, the fossil fuel industry as the bad guys, and they just want to punish them and basically support, you know, quote unquote, the good guys, which is the wind and solar industry, even though, you know, 80% of the solar panels that are made in the world are, come from China. And a lot of times they use slave labor in Western China. So, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not necessarily just a an environmental issue for these people. They see it as a way to you know manipulate the electorate and the political landscape as well. Well, you started out there, and I think that was the perfect place to start. That uh, they're reshaping society, restructuring society. Yeah, and not for the better, unfortunately. Yeah, right, right. Uh, two minutes. Have you put numbers to? <clears throat> the taxpayer cost on the subsidies to wind and solar? Uh, so I would say that the closest thing that's happened recently is, you know, in the Inflation Reduction Act, they said, oh, this will only be only $414 billion. Uh, that was what the Congressional Budget Office said. And then I think Goldman Sachs came out and said, actually, no, it's going to be $1.2 trillion through, you know, 2032. So, you know, we are talking massive sums of money, and um, I think that, you know, every every wind turbine for the first 10 years that it operates gets about twenty five or twenty six dollars per every unit of electricity that it generates. Right. So uh, that's a huge amount of money. And then once that subsidy is supposed to expire, they actually repower the turbine after only 10 years in operation so they can get even more federal money. So it's an endless uh, money machine for the, the the folks who who build and operate these things. I am told, I can't verify this, hoping you can. <clears throat> in the nation, there's 30,000 wind turbines that have expired beyond their ability to capture a subsidy and sitting idle. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wrote an article about that, and it's called A Death of a Wind Farm in our magazine, Thinking Minnesota. Yeah, as, as soon as these things run out of subsidies, they don't run them very often. So uh, Warren Buffett said it best. If we weren't for the federal tax credits, we wouldn't be doing it. Isaac, we have one minute. Where do people get the information that you have available and go to the center of the American experiment and give us all that in detail so we can follow up? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our website is AmericanExperiment.org. We're active on our Facebook and other social media channels. That's just Center of the American Experiment. And if you click on the Energy and Environment tab on our website, then you'll get to see all the work that my colleague Mitch Rowley and I have been doing for the last several years. So for me to see you again, am I going to have to come to Minnesota or meet up in North Dakota? Or are you going to come to Nebraska finally? Mm, depends on how good your barbecue is down there. Oh, now you're then you'll be here tomorrow. See you then. Okay, what sounds time, great. What time? <laughs> we'll fire up the, the fire pit right outside that window. We have successfully journeyed down the road connecting food producers to food consumers. For Isaac Orr, I'm Trent Luce. Both of us reminding you that all roads do lead to a roll route. No wind and solar. You know, I'm going to tell you, it's tough 
for me to find sponsors to align with because I stand for honor like the veterans. I stand on culture like happens at the National Western. And so for people to be willing to have somebody who's a free thinker, a free spirit, and willing to stand up and say, that's not right, when it's time to say that's not right, makes me proud to have sponsors and partners like the National Western and everything that's going to happen at the 2024 getting back to the culture of Colorado. That's what it's about. Now, the National Western extends way beyond Colorado, but it started in the culture of Colorado, taking care of the resources and providing what people need. We're getting back to that culture at the National Western. Details at nationalwestern.com.